one thing I do kind of want to caution a little bit for many of those who are interested in doing this kind of climate data management systems for corporates is the difficulty is not necessarily having a online platform where you can host data. <laughs> Oftentimes the challenges in large corporates is the systematic organization and accountability for data. It's more of a, again, change management in a large yeah. organization rather than, yeah. So not everything can be solved by, you know, a, a whip smart person with great UX experience and some Python. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The War in Current. I'm your host, Edmund Downey, PhD student in public affairs at the Princeton School of Public International Affairs. And this week, we're going to dive into a couple topics in the energy transition that we haven't covered yet on The Current, or at least not in a while. We're going to talk emissions accounting, that is how you measure your emissions, as well as approaches to decarbonization among large corporates in industrial sector value chains. And we're going to do that all in one guest. That's Sophie Liu. She's principal for Scope Street Carbon Management at BHP, which is one of the biggest mining companies in the world. We're talking about a company that's the world's third biggest iron ore producer and fourth biggest copper producer. And its joint venture with Mitsubishi accounts for a quarter of seaborne trade of metallurgical coal, which is a key input for steel making. So this is a big company and it's a big job to be managing its scope three emissions. Let me give you a quick primer before we get into this on emission scopes. So scope one emissions are your direct emissions. That's what you emit when you burn fuels on site, for instance. Scope two emissions are your emissions from the electricity and heat you purchase, say from the gas plant that powers the grid that you get your power from. And scope three emissions, where Sophie's team comes in, those are the emissions all up and down your value chain. That's the emissions from your upstream suppliers and from your downstream customers. So say for BHP, that means the emissions, for instance, from the producers of the equipment it uses in its mining operations, or the emissions from the steelmakers and copper smelters that buy its ores. And those, the latter in particular, those are some pretty energy intensive and carbon intensive facilities. So steel say that's seven to 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So what I'm trying to say is that BHP is at the heart of some major value chains for the clean transition. And managing scope three emissions means being in the thick of supporting BHP's customers and suppliers in decarbonizing. And that is why I'm excited to have Sophie here. So let's dive right in. This is Ned Downey, a PhD student at Princeton in Public Affairs, and your host this week for the Wharton Current. Today, I'm joined by our special guest, Sophie Liu. We're thrilled to have her. She's currently a principal for Scope 3 Carbon Management at BHP, an Australian company that's one of the world's largest producers of iron ore, copper, and metallurgical coal, among other commodities. She came to BHP last year after rising up the ranks at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, where she was most recently head of metals and mining coverage there. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I gave a little teaser on your background, but walk us through it. How do you end up where you are now? Yeah, as you described, originally I went to Sites for Grad School, always wanted to focus on energy resources, economics, and finance, and essentially I took a Fulbright actually to go to China because I was interested in learning more about clean energy markets. And at the time, all of the jobs that were available in the energy industry in the U.S. were mostly gas-focused. So I took a punt, went to China on the Fulbright, had a great experience, and then afterwards basically uh, joined Bloomberg New Energy Finance, started my life off as a China carbon analyst, Carbon and Power, and then eventually took over the China research team. So I was head of China research for a few years, a really great experience. And then afterwards, I wanted to focus a little bit more on a tangential industry that's very important to the decarbonization narrative, but maybe I felt like there needed to be more analysis and research. And so I went into metals and mining with a focus on critical minerals and the decarbonization of the metals and mining sector. Did that for a few years as leading of that team at BNEF as well. 
moved to Australia. So now I'm based in Sydney. And then afterwards, I wanted to give a try in terms of what decarbonization strategy would look like at the corporate end in an actual company in terms of the challenges of deploying the physical strategy. And so took an opportunity and joined the climate change team here at BHP. Right on. And I got to give a little plug as well for something else you did in that process, which was being co-exec director of the Beijing Energy Network. Am I right about that? Yes, Uh, that's right. (laughs) The good old days. (laughs) The the good old days. That's where I think we met back in 2017, 2018 or something like that. A good example of a group that really bridged the China and West world, Young Professionals Network of Energy People based in Beijing. Great group of locals and expats who were incredibly intelligent and wise about all things energy resources and climate for China. Yeah, I really miss that group. We're scattered about now. There's people in all different places of the world, but hopefully one day we'll be able to reunite in China again. Yeah, no kidding. Just hanging on by our WeChat threads. Um, (laughs) Pretty much. So tell us more about BHP itself and what brought you to working on the climate change team there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, BHP is actually the largest mining company in the world. We produce lots of key commodities that are particularly important for the future decarbonization. That includes copper, nickel for batteries, it includes iron ore and metallurgical coal for the production of steel, which we have to acknowledge is an incredibly important part of infrastructure that is going to be the built environment in which a lot of our sort of future decarbonized states will exist in. So these are all important components. We used to have oil and gas in our business as well, as well as thermal coal, but we've recently undergone some major portfolio changes. So the oil and gas assets are now merged with Woodside, and we are already agreed to be exiting thermal coal with the last asset, which is New South Wales Energy Coal, kind of on a timeline for closure by 2030. So BHP has a a very important leadership role to play in both the mining sector, as well as particularly for Australia. It is the largest company in Australia from market cap perspective, and it plays a crucial role in terms of kind of where the decarbonization strategy of Australia's relationship with the rest of the world should go as well. Australia is in a unique geopolitical position, in my experience, the last few years that its largest customer for pretty much everything is China. (laughs) Um, But its political um, sort of alignments, if you will, are still very much with the Western world and particularly with the US. And it has a kind of delicate balance to play, if you will. And it's, it's a very different approach to its relationship with China than the US would take, for instance. And decarbonization is always front and foremost in that discussion of the geopolitical relationship between Australia and China. And BHP being one of the the largest companies in that relationship also has a really interesting role to play in navigating that and promoting the cooperation and the coal development of decarbonization strategies. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it seems like you sort of you're hitting all pieces of the energy transition in a lot of ways, both geographically in terms of covering China, obviously the biggest producer of carbon emissions today, certainly not largest by per capita, but largest in volume, but also in the exposure just to different stages of the transition, so to speak, if you want to put it in those terms, right? You've got your traditional fossil-based economy, metallurgical coal, really important input for steel making, but then also your clean tech metals, copper facing an enormous boom in demand in particular. And then you have iron ore, which is kind of in the middle both a really important part of that traditional mix and a huge part of the decarbonization story as well. So it's a, it seems like a really interesting. And now potash. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Potash is is an interesting proposal for the future of agriculture. It is a, particularly from a downstream application perspective, a lower emissions um, input for fertilizer and a a way for boosting sort of food yields in the future. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. Interesting. What, what is potash replacing? 
It's it's a way of producing a fertilizer that doesn't use essentially fossil fuel-based ammonia. Yeah, so it's a non-fossil based way of producing fertilizer. Wow. No, I, that's just another place to be in the transition then. Very interesting. Yeah. And and you kind of have to follow all of this because you're principal for scope three carbon management. Some of us are going to know more or less about scopes and corporate carbon management. So let's start with a basic overview. What does it mean to be principal for scope three carbon management at BHP? <laughs> Sure. I think this is probably the experience of many folks who are working on climate in large corporates, which is about half of your job is not necessarily the technical component of decarbonization, but really the change management component of the company itself. So trying to drive change in very large, very complex organizations, very risk adverse organizations around a topic that is massive and thematic and widespread and touching on every component of operations and sales, et cetera, et cetera. So I would definitely say that one of the best description of this job is that at least half of the job is basically change management in a corporate. The other thing I guess would be to kind of clarify on the definition of scope three, because I think when people think of what I do in scope three, the focus is overwhelmingly on steel making and downstream decarbonization. But as we know, the definition of scope three has both upstream and downstream, right? So so upstream would be also working on strategies to decarbonize the emissions of our suppliers, being more strategic about how we purchase goods and services so that we can ensure that our value chain in the upstream is also decarbonizing. This is actually an extremely, I think, important part of the strategy because there's an asymmetry in the amount of influence and leverage you may have with those who you purchase from versus those who you sell to. So although the focus hasn't historically been as much on the influence that a company like BHP can leverage with its purchasing power with its supply chain, I do think that's actually something that's of increasing focus, particularly for copper and nickel value chains. So there's quite a bit of work that I do also on decarbonizing procurement. And then, of course, we have a great decarbonization team focused on the maritime aspect of our operations as well. We ship a lot of goods around the world. And so we definitely have an important role to play in terms of being a leader and driving change and adoption of lower emissions routes or zero emissions routes in maritime as well. Yeah. Yeah. All over the place. You got to sort of follow each yeah. of those value chains in each of those sectors. How has your guys' approach on management of carbon emissions evolved over time? And what have been the big milestones in that process? Absolutely. I think so. BHP has been involved in reporting, disclosure, and management of its greenhouse gas emissions for many, many years. It was one of the earliest adopters in the industry, as well as in Australia. So we're definitely leading the industry in terms of trying to get a better grasp of how to even measure it. So I would definitely say the first approach, the first stage was always how do we measure? How do we report? Right? What are the best standards for disclosure? How do we engage our market? After that, I would say that basically the next stage was trying to establish some ambition around that. So once we've had a better grasp of what it is and modeling the potential decarbonization trajectories in our greenhouse gas emissions plans, then the idea was to try to come up with climate aligned outcomes that we could viably do in our business and determine how much we could contribute to carbonization. And now I think we're entering the third phase, which is really kind of the rubber hitting the, the road, if you will, which is now that we've done the mapping out and now that we've kind of done the measuring, the hard part is, is really the next few years, which is getting the decarbonization to actually happen. And, and we're very much proponents of not talking about what we're going to do, but doing the things that we can do, right? And try to act earlier rather than later. Now, there's different ways that that narrative is spun sometimes in the market. We refrain from 
being too bombastic about how we talk about things in the public sphere, it comes across as being conservative. And it is too, right? right? So a company as large as ours is naturally risk-averse. But basically, a lot of the focus over the next few years is to really kind of boots on the ground, heads down, properly working through how you actually implement decarbonization at our operations and in our value chain, always keeping in mind a balance between the needs for maintaining safety of our workers, the health of our communities, and also, you know, return for our shareholders, while at the same time meeting kind of the obligations that we have for decarbonization, right? So there's there's this kind of balance that we have to maintain between all of these different requirements. The business can't only optimize for carbon emissions. You said that you kind of have gotten to that stage where you have a sense of your emissions, but that seems an incredibly complicated task. Tell me more about how you guys actually get to that stage where you feel comfortable with that number. I mean, there's so much that goes into measuring scope three emissions. You need so much information there. How do you make it happen? A lot of blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> no, reporting of emissions, particularly in the scope three category, is still particularly immature. If you look at our FY22 annual report, which just came out back in August, our scope one and two emissions in total were around 12 million tons in FY22, which in Australia is half of 21 and half of 22 because the different financial year ends. And our scope three emissions totaled around 400 million tons. We have actually seen a decrease in our scope one and two emissions because of some of the work that we've been doing in decarbonization. Yeah. So I believe it was 60 million tons last year, and now it's a little over 12 million tons this year for scopes one and two. In terms of scope three emissions reporting, I think we are not in a place where we're actually comfortable with everything, to be honest. Generally, you'll find across most of the industry, everyone has to rely on industry average emissions factors for both downstream and upstream, because we're not at a stage where all of our suppliers and all of our customers are accurately reporting their own emissions to us. That would be the only way that we would be able to get close to a real estimate or capture of where emissions actually are. So for scope three upstream in our procurement, for instance, a lot of the emissions is calculated based off of the dollars that we spend on different categories of goods and services. And then we have to find an industry average emissions factor to assign to those dollars spent, right? And use that as a, as a way of calculating. And then in our customers, same thing, you know, we essentially have to try to come up with the best industry average approximation for the routes of, for instance, steel production that our products happen to go into and be able to get emissions intensity based off of those estimates. So there's there's a lot of different evolving methodology. And currently, I know that quite a few of the industry associations are working on improving that methodology because a lot of what was designed for scope three reporting, which you know the WRI World Resources Institute developed originally the greenhouse gas protocol, when many, many years ago, when they first developed scope three, it wasn't particularly from a, a supply chain perspective. And it definitely didn't take into account the intricacies of mining, for instance. What, what was <laughs> um, it from? You know, I, it's a good question. I feel like when it was first designed, it was much more designed for manufacturers that were based in the US or Europe. And it was probably more designed from the perspective of, let's say you were an auto manufacturer, right? But it's a particularly difficult standard to use if you're further up the value chain, or if you're not an energy company, but a resource company, because a lot of the law, the rules around reporting embodied emissions is much more difficult than reporting the direct emissions associated with energy oh, wow, combustion. Yeah. 
Yeah. So trying to estimate embodied emissions for different materials, it's a whole thing. And there isn't a lot of standardization across Ooh. the industry yet. It's something that we really have to improve on indirect emissions. But anyways, so so everyone is working on improving those emissions methodology. But basically, the long answer short is we're still constantly improving our reporting methodology and working closely with our customers and our suppliers to implement strategies around traceability and transparency and other things to allow them to allow us to be able to connect up our data systems and report emissions to each other, but still respect data privacy and sensitivities of, of business and non-competes as well, because underlying a lot of this emissions data is activity data or performance data. And most of that kind of data is usually considered highly sensitive, right? By, um, by everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a, a nitty gritty nut and bolt that I'm very interested in is about the data management side of it. You've got some amount of data coming in from suppliers, also from companies that you purchase from, and you're integrating that with industry average based estimates as well in building your footprint. So how do you guys track that data? What are the tools that you have for that workflow? Is that an area where you guys think there's room for improvement in the market? I think the answer is yes. Every company has a different approach and sometimes every part of the business has a different system and it's the job of the climate team to basically just aggregate. I would definitely say that there's a lot of solutions being offered in the industry. I probably get one or two solicitations on LinkedIn a, a week um, <laughs> from someone who has a startup that they want to sell a service around this issue. And I do acknowledge that it is an issue to be solved. But one thing I do kind of want to caution a little bit for many of those who are interested in doing this kind of climate data management systems for corporates is the difficulty is not necessarily having a online platform where you can host data. <laughs> Everyone can develop a cloud platform for data. That's not the issue. Oftentimes the challenges in large corporates is the systematic organization and accountability for data. So companies are organized in the way that it makes logical sense for their operations. They're not organized in the way that is logical for the reporting of emissions data. So a lot of the challenges is actually mapping out internally where data sits, where it's owned, developing the accountabilities and, and things like that, and then aggregating it in. So those kinds of challenges, that's more of a service thing and not a technology thing. <laughs> it's more of a, again, change management in a large yeah. organization rather than, yeah. So not everything can be solved by, you know, a, a whip smart person with great UX experience and some Python, right? So <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> I suppose that is the more that one spends in, in most enterprises or most contexts, the more one discovers that not everything can be solved through those sorts of things. Hey folks, quick sidebar. The next chunk of the interview gets into some ins and outs on steel making and steel decarbonization. And so I should probably give you a quick intro to these topics before we dive in. As I said, on top right, steel is around seven to 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And most of that comes from the most widespread global steelmaking process, what's called the integrated steelmaking process. This process involves producing steel by feeding iron ore and a coal product known as coke, it's made from metallurgical coal, into a blast furnace, right? Iron ore, metallurgical coal, both major commodities for BHP. The blast furnace produces molten iron. You take that, you feed it into another facility called a basic oxygen furnace, and you get steel. That's about 70% of global steel production. Then you got a bunch of alternatives to these, and some of them are getting more and more attention these days as possible lower carbon pathways. So for instance, you've got direct reduce iron plants or DRI plants, which do a similar job to blast furnaces. That is, they separate out iron from iron ore, but they do it through a different process. And that process involves fossil fuels. And we're going to get into this more in the interview on replacing those fossil fuels with hydrogen. Look, there's lots more on alternative steel production pathways 
go ahead, study up if you're interested. It's super fascinating. This is just going to give you a flavor of some of the concepts that Sophie and I are going to be chatting about in the rest of this interview. So enough from me. Let's get back to the conversation. I had another question I wanted to ask about scope three emissions, because you guys have some specific targets and goals on those. Can you tell me about those and how you formulated them? Yeah, absolutely. So some of these predated my time of joining BHP, and then some of them were things that we developed in our climate transition action plan, which we published last year. But basically, to start off with, we are pursuing a long-term goal of net zero in our scope three greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. But we acknowledge that achieving this goal is uncertain, particularly given the challenges of a net zero pathway for many of our customers in the processing of our products. And we definitely can't ensure the outcomes alone in scope three, especially because the very definition of scope three emissions is that they are emissions that sit outside of our operational control, right? They are in our value chain. And in order to support that, we are, you know, targeting net zero by 2050 for the operational greenhouse gas emissions of our direct suppliers. And that is also subject to the availability of the technologies and the supply and safety standards and establishment of reasonable thresholds for price premiums. We will also target net zero by 2050 for the greenhouse gas emissions of the shipping of HP products. So that's particularly important in terms of getting our, our product to our customers. And then we will continue to partner with our customers and others to try to accelerate the transition to carbon neutral steelmaking, as well as other downstream processes. So these are long-term goals that are supporting that kind of long-term goal of net zero in scope three by 2050. Then we also have some 2030 goals. So these are a little bit more indirect in the sense that they are about the technology development pathways that we see happening in those sectors that BHP is investing into, researching into, and partnering with our customers or ship, shipping providers into. So we support the steelmaking industry to develop technologies and pathways capable of a 30% reduction in emissions intensity in integrated steelmaking. I just want to be really clear on that, integrated steelmaking. So that is the blast furnace BOF route with widespread adoption expected to occur post-2030. And that basically reflects heavily on the kind of customer relationships that we develop with steel producers who are very much the dominant producers in the integrated steelmaking space. And then finally, we're also supporting 40% emissions intensity reduction of BHP chartered shipping of BHP products. And that's in line with the International Maritime Organization's trajectory of decarbonization for the global maritime industry. So what does it mean when you all say support industry to develop technologies and pathways capable of a 30% emissions intensity reduction integrated steel by 2030? What does that mean? And how do you guys measure it? Absolutely. The measurement of the baseline is if we were to talk about steel production just going on the way it always has, right? Using the current fuel mix, using the current technologies, using the current efficiencies and things like that. And then from there, we've looked at a range of different solutions, whether it be efficiency gains on existing blast furnace routes, whether it be fuel switching at existing blast furnace routes, as well as whether it be sort of more full-on switching over to other alternative options like DRI, HBI, or DRI plus Melter, or the many, many other options that are out there, Blast Furnace plus FBR, lots and lots of different routes. And we've essentially mapped out the ones that we discussed with our customers that they are interested in investigating earlier in the time frame, and essentially found that those technologies aggregated together could realistically achieve a 30% emissions intensity reduction in steelmaking by 2030. But the problem is 
the reason why we don't say that we are actually expecting a 30% emissions reduction in all steel making by 2030 is uh, because it takes a long time for countries or companies to deploy those new technologies as well. So as much as we're investing a lot of effort and time and money into developing the new routes that can immediately reduce emissions as, as early as possible, it's still going to take time for those routes and technologies and solutions to get widely adopted, right? And then that results in an overall emissions intensity reduction. So that's kind of the probably the best way of expressing that. Yeah. Got it. And absolutely, this comes back to you guys are not in a position, obviously, to dictate how these technologies get adopted downstream. Your position is to be able to support that. Yeah, oftentimes to basically complement and develop our product in a way that is complementary to those things, right? So, and this is actually something that BHP has always done. We all, every iron producer is in close conversation with their steel making customers to make sure that whatever product blend that they're selling is suitable to the, the specific chemical mix that is needed for um, the processes that their customers are off taking, right? And a lot of times you have to remember that a steel making, like any other metallurgical process, is extremely kind of case-specific and site-specific. So it's really difficult sometimes to sit there and say that there are these one-size-fits-all solutions because there really isn't. Every mill is different. Every site is different. Every customer's mix requirements is a little bit different. So we've always been working with them to kind of optimize and make sure that whatever we provide is suitable to what it is that they're trying to execute. Now, on that front, actually, one of the product mixes that's been getting particular attention in the steel decarbonization world is steel produced through direct reduction of iron using green hydrogen and then through an electric arc furnace. One of the things that's been mentioned on that is that it requires pretty high grade iron ore as an input. Can you guys tell us more about your perspective on what that might mean for that particular pathway and what it means for you all as well? Is it something that might involve for you acquiring new assets or making new processing investments, or is that something that you're still kind of working through? There's lots of different things that are going into steel decarbonization. There's a lot of focus recently on DRI, particularly green hydrogen DRI. And we've had a lot of conversations with our customers and with our suppliers and with our different stakeholders and our investors about this question. First off, I would say that like, I think BHP is already looking at all of the potential solutions that we could be that we could be exploring for steel decarbonization, and that does include DRI. So two of our five customer partnerships. So we have five customer partnerships in total: one with Hebei Steel, one with POSCO, one with JFE, one with Baowu, and one with Tata. Out of those five, two of them are planning to explore DRI pathways, right? So with Hebei and also with JFE. So we're already looking at the suitability of our products in the DRI pathway. And we have also started test programs with manufacturers of DRI production equipment to basically kind of assess the performance of BHPs ores in, in that technology as well, right? So we're very much actively participating in that part of the technology solution proposal, if you will, the, the bundle of solutions that are being proposed. So I think one of the main strategies for increasing the window of opportunity and viability for DRI as being a potential future solution for steel decarbonization is to increase the window of opportunity for iron ore of various grades in DRI, right? So DRI is still a relatively untested technology in the sense of it's not widely deployed across the world. And I think something only like 4% of global iron ore supply is suited to a DRI sort of grade, I think. So one of the solutions is basically, can you make DRI <laughs> more fitted to the various amount of iron ore that is currently supplied in the market? So that's, that's probably solution one. 
Solution two is, can you make iron ore more suited to DRI? So you got to kind of meet in the middle, right? Both sides have to work on it. And, and on that front, we're already looking at beneficiation at our iron ore sites, and so are all of our peers in the iron ore mining space. We do have some high quality iron ore assets in our portfolio, including Smarco. And so there is this kind of question of, you know, is there is there more iron ore that can be developed that is also suited to this DRI route. And then finally, the third thing, and this is the thing that we do try to propose more, is everybody is so focused on DRI, but sometimes we kind of question are you focused on DRI hydrogen because you are trying to find a solution for steel decarbonization? Or are you focused on hydrogen DRI because you're trying to find an off-taker for hydrogen? Those are two entirely different stories. <laughs> and I don't always find that everyone has fully clarified themselves what their actual mm -hmm. intentions are. Let's just put it this way. BHP's goal is not to find a market for hydrogen, right? Not in that sense, right? We do intend on utilizing hydrogen as a solution for decarbonization in many parts of our solutions, right? So we're looking at potentially application of green ammonia for shipping. We're looking at, you know, some of our explosive suppliers have come to talk to us about green ammonia as application. There's, you know, interest in longer term, potentially looking at hydrogen as a way of solving extremely large mobile equipment that we maintain and how to sort of move that away from diesel and areas where electrification just isn't the most viable solution. So there's a lot of places where we're looking at hydrogen. And I think if you look at the modeling for steel decarbonization that BHP has done, they would also say that there is definitely a role for hydrogen and DRI in global steel decarbonization. But the thing is, at the end of the day, BHP has to focus on decarbonizing the emissions of our customers right? We're partnering with our customer base. And our customer base, besides facing constraints around um, whether or not there's actually even enough high quality iron ore that goes into DRI, there's this question of, is their capital base, their steel production base, ready to be converted full on to DRIEF? Because for many of the producers in developing Asia, and this is particularly China and India, switching over to DRIEF is not a simple thing. You basically have to, well, get rid of your entire steel fleet <laughs> and replace it with an entire new steel fleet. And it's a, a young steel fleet already. Yeah, and it's a very young steel fleet to begin with, right? Only 10 to 15 years old is the average age of most integrated steel production sites in China. So that's a really big capital ask <laughs> to make. So at the end of the day, yes, there's lots of different solutions. We're exploring different opportunities, DRI plus Melter, FBR, like HBI, all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, we don't think everybody should only focus on that one solution proposal, especially when... There is very clear messaging coming from customers in Asia that they also need the other solutions. <laughs> they do want to decarbonize blast furnace if they can, right? And honestly, if you're an investor, you should be uncomfortable if every steel producer and iron ore producer in the world wanted to only focus on one specific technology solution. At the end of the day, there needs to be a backup plan, right? So I, I'm very pragmatic about decarbonization. At a certain degree, you do need to invest into multiple pathways. And one of those pathways is decarbonizing the blast furnace route, which means increasing efficiency, finding alternative fuels and carbon capture, right? So there's a certain degree of kind of acknowledging the reality of what you're looking at on the, on the ground and also developing solutions for what's already there as well. Yeah, fascinating. I think something that 
deserves more attention outside of the steel industry and discussions about decarbonizing the steel industry is some of these kind of constraints or the practical considerations that a number of these firms are facing in making their decisions. Let's step back a little bit to talk just more about the experiences you've had in your career and getting to where you are now. What have been the really important ones that have shaped it? And from an MBA perspective, what do you see as some of the biggest opportunities in the sector for people who are interested in understanding steel decarbonization and where they might fit in? What are the opportunities and what deserves more attention? I would say maybe starting with the first one, which is what were the most important experiences um, that have kind of shaped my, my career so far? I appreciated taking the punt and the risk to take a Fulbright after my grad degree, after my master's. That's a bit of an unusual path. It was financially probably a bit risky, <laughs> but it meant that I got to go to a rapidly growing market in China and focus on a sector that I was particularly interested in growing and learning more about. So it was in non-traditional career path, but I'm definitely glad that I made that decision at the end of the day, even though it was definitely not like, you know, that's that's not the normal way to go about it. I could have easily stayed in the U.S. and maintained a career as an energy and commodities analyst. I had done very well, but yeah, that was one. Two, I guess for, if you're interested in developing business opportunities or solutions for climate, so far my experience is that the MBA probably isn't the most crucial in getting the foot through the door on this specific field. It's right now, I would say that either the technical expertise of doing climate work, so really kind of understanding the intricacies of, of measuring emissions, how do you actually implement strategies for decarbonization across operations, that's probably more important, or if you have the change management experience. So maybe that's the part where the MBA really comes in useful, which is uh, if you have the change management kind of learnings and knowing how to enter into a large organization and have to push through policies and guidance and risk controls and things like that, that could be fundamentally transforming the way a business operates. It's a very useful skill to have. So I would definitely say that's probably one of those things that an MBA would be able to teach you or the MBA of experience of, of working your way through a corporate is a good way of learning about that as well. It makes sense. The a lot of the attention, I think, sometimes goes to the sort of big disruptive technology, the VC end of things. But we need also that attention in large corporates that are responsible for most of the emissions that actually take place in the world about figuring out how do you take technologies that are maybe further along in development and really spread them through yeah. the energy ecosystem. There's so many moonshot solutions out there and so many smart engineers and scientists who are out there trying to make those solutions viable. But what I found challenging is whether you be a large corporate or an investor, because by nature, so many of these technologies are unproven and the modeling of their future adoption is extremely uncertain and difficult. And because global carbon pricing is still not universal, and so therefore the underlying incentives for emissions abatement is still kind of a little in flux and, and not consistent between different geographies and different regulatory jurisdictions, really bridging that gap of taking a solution and actually implementing it <laughs> or getting a mainstream corporate that has the ability to leverage its scale to make it a full-on solution. That's really the hard part. That really is a very, very difficult part of the decarbonization equation that I'm hoping people better than me will be able to solve. <laughs> um, well, good luck finding those people. But thanks so much for joining Sophie today. Really enjoyed chatting. And I think a great final message to take away about 
that there are a lot of different places at the transition that we need people to slot in. If you want to learn more about BHP and what they're doing on climate, you guys have a sustainability page on your website. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Come and visit the climate change page where all of our past climate change reports and disclosures are on. And probably the best place to find a lot of the information is in our latest annual report in the climate change chapter, where we go into detail and disclose, you know, all of our emissions and our decarbonization strategy and our adaptation strategy for physical climate change risks, as well as other components. And that's our show for today. Thanks again to Sophie Liu for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about what BHP is up to, as she said, you can visit their website at bhp.com. And if you like this conversation, do spread the good word online. You can find us and tag us at The Warden Current on Instagram and at Warden Current on Twitter. Like and follow there and make sure you're subscribed on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So this has been Ned for The Current and until the next time. Bye.